0: us that there's no place like home. Some of you are very familiar with that movie uh, and, and you know very well that Dorothy gets very upset when this wicked lady tries to take away her little dog Toto um, and so she actually takes her way but Toto runs back home and uh, so to keep Toto safe Dorothy decides the best thing she can do is run away from home is to get away from this place that, that is, is going to cause her some pain and difficulty. So she runs away from home. And in the meanwhile, she gets kind of swept up in this uh, tornado that carries her away to the land of Oz. And it's a place that's very different than her home in Kansas. It's a place where there's munchkins. It's a place where there are lollipop kids. It's a place that, uh, one, is full of colors as opposed to the gray days, as my son would say. It's a place that has wicked witches and nice witches. It's a place that has flying monkeys. And it's just very different. Different, uh, than the land of Kansas where she was used to. And so uh, she admits that in this land there were some things that were not so pleasant, but most of it was a really, really nice place. It was a really beautiful place. But despite that, throughout the whole movie, her one desire is that she wants to go home. And she's willing to do anything it takes to be able to get back home, to get back to Kansas where she belongs, to get back to where her family is and where the people she loves is. And, and that's what she wants more than anything else in the whole world. And so uh, when she kind of wakes up from this bump on the head, she experiences this kind of homecoming and she sees the faces Of people that she loves and she sees the people, the faces of her family that are surrounding her and and people that she had left behind when she ran away in the first place. And for some of you sitting here this morning or some of you that are watching online, uh, you can kind of feel a little bit of what Dorothy was going through because you're in a place now that feels like home. You're in a place that when you open up and you look around you, you know you're surrounded by people that love you. You know that you're surrounded by people who care for you and people that want you here and and people that that want to be part of your life. And so for some of you, this is very much a place that feels like home. And for some of you, God has called you to different places. He's called you to different uh, areas. And now you have this moment to come back. And this feels, even though you've got another place that you're used to, this feels a little bit like home for you. And so whether you're visiting with us for the first time or you're visiting with us for the first time in a long time or you're here every other Sunday or every Sunday, my simple welcome is welcome home. Welcome to a place where you are loved and accepted because we're not, none of us are perfect and so we would welcome more non-perfect people to join us. But there's a part in that final scene in the movie that I think is somewhat overlooked. There's a part in that movie, uh, the, the final scene, that really Dorothy makes a commitment. You see, the movie starts when she runs away from home. But the movie ends with her sitting in her bed in her room. And she sits up and she's talking to Annie M. And she tells them, she makes this commitment. She says that this she's never going to leave this place again. Never ever again is she going to leave this place because this is where she fits. This is where home is. This is where the people she loves is. And then there's no place like home. And I've got to agree with that statement. There is no place like home. And so uh, this morning we're going to kind of look at this commitment idea of homecoming. And, And I'm not going to ask you to never admit or never leave here again because we do want you to leave at some point today. Okay? You're welcome to have lunch with us. But after that... I'm ready to go home, okay? So, uh, nap time will be calling after lunch, and if you stay with lunch, you'll understand that too. So, our commitment this morning is not to stay here in this place. Our commitment is going to come from a guy that we're going to be introduced to named Ezra. And Ezra, uh, you can go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 7 this morning. And we've been walking through some of the characters of the Old Testament uh, through the summer, and Ezra is where we're going to be at this morning because Ezra experiences this homecoming. If you will in Chapter Seven, and you can go ahead and be turned there, but as you 're turn there, let me give you a little background uh, that the Jewish people, the Jewish nation had been taken captive by the Babylonians in about five uh, five seventy nine b c and Uh, The Babylonians had a very interesting way of controlling people that they captured. Instead of just surrounding them and putting a, a garrison of army there, what they did was they would take the brightest and the best. They would take the best people. They would take the leaders, the strongest men, the most intellectual people. They would take all of them back to Babylon with them in hopes that they would train them to be good Babylonians. And if they trained them to be good Babylonians, then they wouldn't have to fight them anymore. And so for decades, the Jewish people have lived under this captivity, and it lasts for several decades until finally the Persians take over Babylon, and when they do, the Persians have a different idea. We're going to be really nice to these people and send them home, because we're tired of them. Now, I don't really know why they sent them home, but that's they, they, their idea is, let's send them home if they want to go home. And so the Persians kind of let the Israelites, let the Jewish people go back um, in, to their homeland if they want to. And they do it in several different ways. And Ezra is this is part of the second group that's getting ready to go back. And so that's where we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 7, starting in the first verse. He says, After these events, during the reign of king Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra... And then we're going to skip, okay? Because all the rest of verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, it's all his family line. And so if you're a genealogist, you can go back and read that. But we're going to skip down to verse 6. Ezra, verse 6, came from Babylon... And he was a scribe, skilled in the laws of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested, because the hand of Yahweh his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Verse 8, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinance in Israel. And then we're going to skip down to the very last two verses of that chapter, verse 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, Praise Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by Yahweh my God, and I gathered Israelites' leaders to return with me. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. God, we are overwhelmed by the fact that you can turn graves into gardens. God, we are so overwhelmed that you can split seas and let us walk through on dry ground. God, we are so overwhelmed by the presence of your Holy Spirit, by the presence of you here this morning. God, not just because of the things that we read about in the Old Testament, not just because of the things that we, we know about you, but God, because of the amazing things that we don't know about you. Because the amazing things that we have yet to learn. God, we are overwhelmed by you because there is so much more to you than we can ever even imagine. And so, God, I pray that you speak through this text this morning. And God, I pray that as we gathered here, either in this place or online for this homecoming service, God, I pray that you speak to our hearts this morning. God, I pray that our hearts are open to listen and be obedient to you this morning. And God, I pray that when we leave here this morning, we leave here making a commitment to you, making a commitment to be closer to you, to grow deeper in your word. A commitment to finish the task that you have put us to, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak clearly to our hearts this morning. I pray that we are open to hear your voice this morning, Father. And God, I pray that as we sit and as we hear your words this morning, God, we leave here knowing that we came in here different than what we are walking out these doors with, Father. God, let us be committed to you and nothing else, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen some of you might have heard the accomplishments of a lady named katie spots this week and uh, katie is described as an endurance athlete and she has had several accomplishments over the last years of her life she's now 30 um, and so she has had these pretty amazing accomplishments in 2008 she became the first person to swim the entire length of the allegheny river which is a total of 325 miles now for us in North Carolina, Allegheny is a different place. This is the river up in Pennsylvania. So you guys that are in Pennsylvania and always watching, this is for you. Okay, She swam the entire 325 miles. I'm just assuming she swam downstream and not upstream for that. All right? In 2010, she set the world record for being the youngest person to row solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Just her and a rowboat across the entire Atlantic Ocean in 2010. In 2011, she biked 375 miles in 24 hours, as well as being part of a four-person relay team that biked 3,000 miles all across the United States. The year after that, she completed her first Ironman triathlon. And then since then, she has completed four other Ironman triathlons. She has some great accomplishments, but her greatest accomplishment happened just this past week. In February of this year, she partnered with this Christian organization um, called Life Water International. And some of you may be familiar with Lifewater International. It's a great organization. It's a Christian organization. And their mission, and the reason she partnered with them, is to raise money and awareness for this mission. And this mission is to provide clean drinking water for every kid. And to share the love of Christ with everyone across the world. That's a great mission. And so she wanted to raise awareness for this. And she wanted to to, um, give them some money and be able to to provide for them. And so she decided that she was going to do an ultra-long run to help raise awareness for this mission. So some of you may have saw this Monday morning. This past Monday on Labor Day at 5.07 a.m. Most of us didn't even know there was a 5.07 a.m. on Labor Day because we don't have to get up at 5.07 on Labor Day. But at 5.07 on Labor Day morning, Katie took her, her starting spot on the Canadian border and she ran across the entire state of Maine, 137 miles until she reached a pier Looking into the Atlantic Ocean. And when she got there, the first thing she did was take off her shoes and jump in the ocean. 137 miles. And so she has told everybody that that from her past experiences of running, and she's ran a lot. She says usually the first four miles of a run are the hardest part of any run. Okay, Now I'm going to disagree with her. I'm going to say that the first hardest part of a run is the first four steps. Okay, that's my private opinion. That's just me. But she says the first four miles is where she and when she gets over that four mile hump, then it's really just downhill from there. And I'm thinking that sounds interesting. But four miles is really a long way from one hundred and thirty seven miles like that's not even scratching the surface of one hundred and thirty seven miles. And so she started running. She didn't have any problem with the first four miles. She thought things were going great. And then she started hitting some elevation, some hills around mile thirty. And she said when she started hitting these heels after running 30 miles, she kind of hit this physical and mental wall. And if you guys are runners, you kind of know what that feels like. She kind of hit this this wall that she wasn't quite sure. She started to doubt herself. And she started to doubt whether she could do this or not. And even though she'd ran this distance many times, she, she began to question, do I really have what it takes to finish this journey? And so all of a sudden the thought hit her that she had just ran 30 miles. And this is what she said: I ran 30 miles, and not once did I have to worry about access to clean water. She said that whatever temporary pain I endured had—it wasn't a match for the—and har- it wasn't a match for that hardship, one that billions of people face every single day. So instead of focusing on how challenging the run felt, I started to slowly accept and feel at peace with it. After all, this was never meant to be easy. And this was the thought that drove her to keep going. This was the thought that allowed her to push through not just 30 miles, not 40 miles, not 50 miles, not 60 miles, not even 100 miles, but 137 miles of pain and struggle and agony. This is what allowed her to go through is I'm running this race for somebody else. I'm running the race because this is a mission that God has sent me on. You see, for her, this race wasn't about her. This run wasn't about her at all. She could have quit at any point in time. In fact, I could imagine that every step felt like an excuse to, to quit when her muscles started spasming so bad that she had to stop and get her legs wrapped and her back wrapped and, and, and relax for a moment she could have stopped around a mile 100 in fact the truth is that katie never really had to agree to this run in the first place there was nothing in this run for katie katie wasn't going to get a million dollars for running this race Katie wasn't going to get a gold medal for winning this race. In fact, probably most of you had never even heard of Katie until I told you this story. She's not going to get her face on a Wheaties box because of this run. She's doing this run simply because this is a mission that she feels like God has called her to do. And this is a mission that she feels like God has put on her heart and a journey of faith that she's willing to take. And one that she knows that she can't quit until the the journey is finished. Ezra, is in our text, is about to embark on a similar journey of faith. Now, he's not going to run across the state of Maine, and he's not going to run 137 miles. His journey is going to be much further and take a whole lot longer. You see, for Ezra, his mission is just like uh, Katie's like that he's called to this mission. It's something that he can't quit until he's finished. You see, Ezra is not being forced by the king of Persia to go back to Israel. In fact, when the king of Persia said, I'm going to let some of you go back... They could go back, but only if they chose to. And so there are a number of Israelites who chose not to go back. There's a number of people in in Persia now who were in Israel who were in Judah that they don't want to go back. You see, for them, they have set up businesses there. They've set up shop there. They've been in this area for decades. And so this has now become comfortable for them. They've set up homes there. They've set up businesses for them. And for some of them, those businesses were very prosperous In fact, we read in the text that that even um, Ezra himself, he kind of enjoyed the easy life because if you remember in verse 6, it says the king granted him everything he requested You see, you don't just do that if you're a nobody. Ezra had kind of a special relationship with the king, that kind of a working relationship with him. And so he can get anything he wants if he just asks for it. And so life is easy for Ezra and life is easy for all these other people. And so the question really becomes, if life is easy for you here, if everything you needed and wanted was given to you here, if everything was perfect and secure and safe here in Persia, then why in the world... Would you want to go back to the nation of Israel? Why in the world would anybody want to go back to the city of Jerusalem? Why would you give up your, your business? Why would you give up this prosperous, safe, secure life to go back to this place that's been torn apart by war? Why would you go back to this place that's been torn apart where, where nothing is left standing, that there is only destruction and despair everywhere? Why would you walk away from all the great stuff here and go back to a place that's really going to be such a hard work to rebuild and to start all over and to add to it it's not just that destination it's bad it's the traveling to get there you see the journey to get there was both difficult and dangerous travel in the ancient middle east was never really easy and it was never really safe it was always difficult and it was always dangerous roads were not like they were today you don't just hop on a highway and drive 137 miles and show up at myrtle beach okay it doesn't work that way in the ancient middle east you may ride a camel, or you may walk, and the roads are best not developed. And even the roads that are developed, there are frequently bands of raiders and robbers that this is how they make their living. They just sit on sides of the roads and kind of on hillsides, waiting for a big caravan of people to come through because caravans of people mean livestock, caravans of people mean money because they're traveling, they're going to have to pay for stuff along the way. And so you attack them and you raid them, and so this is how folks made their living. So understand that it's not just the destination that looks bad. It's the process of getting there that isn't very appetizing. This is a dangerous journey that they're asked to go on. But in, despite all of that, in verse 9, Ezra and all these other people, they're re- ready to leave Persia. And so in verse 9 it says, On the first day of the first month, he starts this journey. Now understand, this is not New Year's Day. It is it, it, The first day of the first month for us will be January 1st. okay? But for the Jewish folks, it's not. The first day of the first month is the same day as Passover. So usually around early to mid-April is when they would start this journey. And he starts this journey on the first day of the first month. And this journey is going to carry him 900 miles. And not only that, it's going to take him four months to complete it. And that's not moving too fast. Okay, but 900 miles, four months to complete it, because we know at the end of the verse that he arrives in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So he starts on the first day of the first month, he travels for four months, and the first day of the fifth month he gets there. And so we've got to come back to this question, why in the world would you leave Persia in the first place? Why would you want to go to this place that's destroyed? Why would you want to put yourself and your family and all that you know and all that you're comfortable with, why would you want to risk all that and travel this very long, very difficult road? And so the only answer we can come up with in this, to answer this question is found in the very first chapter of this book, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5. And it says that, So the family leaders of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, Get this, everyone that God had motivated, or a different translation would say, everyone that God had stirred up, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So for Ezra and for those that were willing to go back, the reason or the answer that they have for going back is simply this, because God has motivated them to do so. God has stirred up within them two things. A dissatisfaction with where they're at and a longing to be somewhere else. You see, despite the fact that this land had everything they wanted, despite the fact that everything they were asking, they, they got, despite the fact that this was their businesses and their home and everything was safe and secure, they weren't satisfied here. Why? Because God had stirred in their heart. He had motivated them. This is not where you're supposed to be. They're never going to be satisfied here because they're longing to be somewhere else. And this dissatisfaction with this place that seemed like the perfect place is never going to be what it was because they're longing to be somewhere else. They're longing to be on this place that God has called them to. They're longing to be back where Israel was supposed to be in the first place. They're longing to be where they can worship and praise God the way that they've been taught to do. And so their longing for God motivates them to leave their present situation, leave this place they're dissatisfied with, and go somewhere else. Their longing to do what God has called them to do causes them to leave everything behind, their safety, their security, and go on this trip because this is the only place they're going to find satisfaction. This is the only place that the longing of their heart is going to be satisfied. And so they can't be satisfied anywhere else except this place that God has called them to. You see, the longing of their heart can't be satisfied where they're at. It can only be satisfied with where God's called them to be. The longing of their heart can't be satisfied if they made it halfway. You see, Ezra and the people of Judah and the people of Israel, they don't have an option of going 450 miles, traveling for two months, and be like, you know what, this is a, this is a pretty nice place. I think we'll just live here. I mean, if we've got to rebuild that whole city anyway, why don't we just rebuild right here? Why don't we just start here? We're starting from scratch. Anyway, why not just do it here instead of all the... We'll save a little bit of time and travel. And we'll just start here. This is a pretty nice place. You see, if they'd done that, they wouldn't have been satisfied there because their heart was longing for over there. You see, they couldn't start this journey and be like, you know what, we've had enough of these raiders and robbers, and we know there's more coming. The, the, the journey's only going to get more difficult. The further from Persia we go, it, it's going to get more dangerous. It's only going to get worse, so why don't we just stop? This journey's too hard. This journey is too difficult for us. There are too many obstacles in the way. We just need to stop here. And they could have done that, but their heart wouldn't have been satisfied because this is not where God called them to. God called them to there. And so they couldn't finish the journey. They couldn't keep going, or they couldn't not keep going. They had to keep going. They had to finish their journey because they wouldn't find the longing, the satisfaction, wouldn't be satisfied until they got to the place that God had called them to in the first place. And so there might be some of you here this morning that are in this place, or might be some of you that are watching online. That God is speaking to you, and He's calling you to travel a great distance. Maybe for some of you, He's calling you to to go and spread His Word in a very difficult, dangerous journey halfway around the world to spread the gospel. And and He's telling you, listen, everything you've got is fine here, but it's not going to satisfy you. There may be some of you sitting in this room, and some of you, even as kids, or watching online, that, that everything is nice here. But there's something inside of you that is just not satisfied in this place. And the reason is because God's put a longing in your heart for somewhere else. God's put a different people group somewhere in your heart that He's calling you to a different mission. And if that's the case, then you can't stop and you're never going to be satisfied in this place until you reach the place that God has called you to. The longing of your heart will never stop until you've finished your journey and gone to where God has called you to. But let's be honest, not all of us are called to be international missionaries. Not all of us God is calling to go across the world. April and I lived in Africa. Before we uh, got married, we lived with a group of missionaries in Africa. And we found out that international missions was not our calling. We loved it and we had a great time and we enjoyed it. But we found out that's not where God was calling us to. What he was calling us to do was do this so that we can send other people. or We can prepare other people or we can pray for other people who are going. But listen, some of us, God's not calling you to go across the world. For some of us, God's put a longing in your heart to go across the street. You see, for some of us, we're not satisfied just looking across the road at our neighbors and wondering, do they go to church? I don't even know their name. And so we, we can't be satisfied just looking across at our neighbors and not knowing where they're going, not knowing what their life is like, not knowing who they are or if they know the gospel because God's put a longing in our heart to go to them, even across the street, and God's put a longing in our heart to finish this journey. And so let me be honest with you this morning. If God's put a longing in your heart for a person or for a group of people, whether it's a family or a member or a co-worker or a friend, if God's put a longing in your heart to, to bring them to Christ, to bring them to a gospel, conversation to even invite them to church you can't stop until you finish that journey think about it like this if God lays someone on your heart to invite to church and you're like well I'm going to take this I'm not really comfortable inviting them to church I'll just invite them to my house for dinner and for coffee let me tell you that's a great place to start but that's not finishing the journey That's not doing what God has called you to do. And that's not going to fulfill the longings of your heart. And I'm going to be honest with you. The true message that we have in the first part of the story is to finish the journey that God has placed you on, whether it's across the world or across the street. It might be difficult. It might be risky. It might be dangerous. You might have to leave a person or a place behind. It might have to leave some comforts behind. But you've got to finish the journey because until you finish it, you're never going to find satisfaction because this is where God has called you to be. For Ezra and for these folks that are leaving everything that was safe and everything that was secure. The only reason is because God put a longing in their heart for something better. That God put a longing in their heart for another place. And when they arrive at that place, the next lesson that Ezra has to teach us, the next commitment we see, is that when you arrive to the place that God is leading you, remember to give Him the glory for getting you there. You see, the truth is the only reason that you are where you are now is because God got you here. The only reason you're going anywhere from this point on is because God's going to move you from here to there. You see, in, king, in verse 6, King Artaxerxes, he's very gracious to Ezra. He, he's so nice to Ezra, but it's not because of what Ezra does. In verse 6, it says the king had granted him, Ezra, everything that he requested. Get this, because the hand of Yahweh his God was on him the hand of Yahweh or the hand of God becomes a favorite passage of Ezra through this whole journey. In fact, if you look through chapter 7 and verse 8, he uses that same phrase six different times. And we know, because we've talked about this before, that if an author repeats or God repeats something over and over in Scripture, He's doing it because it's important. He's doing it because He wants to get your attention. And so if an author uses this same phrase six times in two chapters, it's something you need to pay attention to. In fact, he uses it again down in verse 9, but he gives this extra adjective to it. About halfway through verse 9, he says that he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, get this, since the gracious hand of God was on him. You see, God's hand was helped supply Ezra with every need that he had, not just to, to, for the journey, but to rebuild when he got there. God's hand had helped Ezra on every part of the journey to keep him safe and get there in the timely manner. And, and it begins to wonder how far and how much we are fighting to, to do things on our own when we need to stop and realize that God's hand is doing it for us. Sometimes we need to stop and think about all that God has done for us. You see, not only for this chapter, but for all that, that, that we see, Ezra never takes credit for anything that takes place in his life. There's not a time that he says, I did this. And throughout this whole journey, he recognized simply that God's hand has been working even behind the scenes when he didn't recognize it, even behind the scenes when nobody else thought he did. Even behind the scenes, he's working through the mind of a king who's a pagan and doesn't even worship him. And that's the reason he ends this chapter the way he does in verse twenty-seven, in verse twenty-eight. It says in verse twenty-seven, he says, "Praise Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put into the king's mind to glorify the house." of the Lord in Jerusalem. Praise God that he's working in the mind of this foreign pagan king who doesn't even know the God that I know, doesn't even worship the God I know, but praise God that he's working behind the scenes to make this happen. And we read on in verse 28, "...who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors and all his powerful officials. So I took courage because I was strengthened by Yahweh my God." And I gathered Israel's leaders to return with me. You see, Ezra sees the hand of God working in and through his life. He knows that he didn't earn the king's favor. He knows that he did nothing to gain it. He knows he's simply in the king's presence because the hand of God is using him. He knows he's simply in the presence, in the presence of the king because of the grace of God. You see, and he has courage to do what God has called him to do because he knows God is working in and through this situation. You see, the old saying is true, where God guides, he provides. But there's something that we need to stop and look at. And you see, sometimes we need to stop and look at what all God's been doing in our lives. James Blackaby, who wrote Experiencing God, says, Sometimes the easiest way to find God's will is to take a step back and look back at your life and see the different places that God has been working and the different places God has been moving. Realize that God has been using different people and places throughout your life to bring you to this point, and He's going to continue to use those people and places throughout the rest of your life. You see, for some of us, we need to step back and take a moment and realize that we are in the place that God has provided for us. We're in a place that God's gracious hand has been with us and through us. And you need, for some of us, we need to stop and realize here on the birthday of our church that it was God who provided this land. It was God who provided this building. It was God who provided the chairs that we're sitting in. And the only reason that we're here today is because of the hand of God. You see, we gather in this church that's 27 years old only because the gracious hand of God has been working in it and through it for 27 years. We've gathered to worship Him not because we deserve to, but only because the gracious hand of God allows us to, because His gracious hand made a way for us to draw near him, You see, it's only because His gracious hand that He provided Jesus Christ as a substitute to give His life on the cross. It's only His gracious hand that gives us salvation in the first place. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's only by the gracious hand of God that any of us are where we are in this exact moment. Whether He's calling you home or He's calling you somewhere else. Understand it's the gracious hand of God that's bringing you through. Every blessing you have in this life and the life to come. Is not because you earned it or deserved it. It's because the gracious hand of God. And we need to commit to give God the glory for the work uh, He's been doing with His gracious hand. See, Ezra not only realizes all that God has done for him, and he appreciates it so much that he makes this final commitment in verse 10. And, and it's this commitment to keep growing in God's word. In fact, um, Jer- Ezra starts out on this journey that takes him four months to complete. And it says in verse 10 as he's approaching. Israel, in kind of in my mind, I kind of picture this. He's almost to the place that God's called him to. But in verse ten, he, he makes this fourfold or excuse me, threefold commitment to God's word. And in verse ten, he says, "Now Ezra had determined in his heart, get this, to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and ordinance in Israel." And this verse would make a great mission statement for any church. I'm going to be honest with you; it make a great mission statement for any individual. It's going to make a great mission statement for every parent sitting in this room. Three things, study the word of God, obey it, and teach it. You see, the first part of this commitment is to study the law of the Lord, to study God's word, to know it and to understand it. And Ezra is committing to becoming a lifelong student of the Bible here. I read an article this week about a guy, it was actually an article that was several years old, four years ago. This newspaper reporter interviewed a 75-year-old man named Michael Nicholson. And they asked him what advice he had for the graduating class of 2020. So this article was written in 2016. And they asked a 75-year-old man, what advice do you have for the class of 2020? And during the interview, Michael shared several uh, important pieces of advice. He said, listen, don't battle with your roommates or other students. You'll actually learn a lot from them. And he says that the next thing he would tell them is you need to stop talking and listen to your professors because, one, you're paying them, and two, it's their class. He says, the next thing you need to do is is establish a good morning routine. Because if you sleep through your morning classes, you're going to spend the rest of the semester trying to make up for lost time. He says, but the biggest piece of advice that he would give to the kids that were going to college is simply this, don't quit early. His advice was simply this, stay in school and stay in it for as long as you can. Now, when I first read that, I was trying to figure out why in the world a newspaper would interview a 75 year old man and ask him advice for the class of 2020. And then I read the rest of the article because Michael Nicholson has done exactly what he said. He has gone to school, he has stayed in school, and he's done it for as long as he can. You see, Michael Williamson has been a student for 55 years straight. Get this, he has earned two associate's degrees one bachelor's degree, 23 master's degrees, three specialty degrees, and one doctorate degree. 30 degrees, and here's the best part. He never took a student loan for any of it. Oh, man, that's advice right there. 30 degrees, and by the way, he, he never took a student loan, and, and he says, listen, the, the, they, why in the world did you do this? And, and the, the, the reporter said, why did you keep going with all these degrees? And he said simply, because I liked it. And I wanted to keep going as long as I could, and here he is, 75 years old. And he says, the only reason I'm not in class right now is because my doctor told me I need to slow down a little bit. He says, really what I found is the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. Ezra makes this commitment to study God's Word, not because God's Word is something new and something different for him. He's studying God's Word because he knows the more he learns about God, the more he wants to know Him, and the more he wants to know about Him. You see, uh, Ezra comes from a very long line of priests. In fact, if you go back to that section we skipped with all those hard-to-pronounce names in verses 1 through 5, what he does is he traces his family line, he traces his lineage from himself all the way down to Aaron, the original priest of Israel. All right, He's related to the one who started this whole process. His whole family for decades and generations, has been dedicated to studying God's Word. For generations and generations, they've been doing this. And so not only that, if you remember in verse 6 how it describes Ezra, it says he's a scribe skilled in the laws of Moses, which Yahweh the God of Israel had given. You see, Ezra has been trained in God's Word. He's a scribe, which is somewhat a a religious lawyer. And So understand that, that he's been to school. He's been to homeschool with the pastors and the preachers. He's been to homeschool with the priests for all these years. He knows that, and he's been to to other rabbis. He's got the degrees, and and so he's studied, and he knows this stuff. But again, here, he's committing to study it more, because the more he learns, the more he wants to know. The more he studies, and the deeper he studies, the deeper he wants to go. And I've got to be honest with you, I wish this was the vision for every parent and every adult sitting in this building and listening online right now. You see, we tend to, to shove off studying God's Word and memorizing God's Word to our kids. We'll, we'll be glad to, to um, help our kids study their wanna verses, and then we'll drop them off at the door. We'll challenge them to memorize verses, but let me ask you, how many of you as adults have challenged your kid or somebody else's kid to memorize verses this past week, and yet you haven't bothered to do it yourself? How many of you as adults have sent your kids to a gospel project this morning or you sent your kids to a Wanda this week and yet you didn't open God's Word for yourself this week? You see, sometimes we get so used to the fact that kids need this stuff and we forget that adults need it too. We think for some reason we get to this level in our life that I know enough about God. I know enough of the Bible. I've got enough to build this foundation of my life on. But I've got to tell you, if you're not constantly in God's Word, whatever foundation you think you built on, it's shaky at best. Can I tell you, the people who drop out of the faith the most are not kids. They're adults who didn't commit to studying God's Word. We don't graduate from the Bible. We don't gain enough knowledge from the Bible. And I want to tell you that one thing that I learned in seminary was the more I know about this Bible, the less I know that I know about it. The more I know about this Bible, the more I love the God who wrote this Bible. The more I give my life to this Word is the more that I want to give it and study it more and more and more. You see, we need a commitment not just as parents, not just as adults, but as a church. We've got to commit to studying God's Word and to learn it. Because we're never going to be able to move on if we don't know it. We're never going to be able to obey it if we don't know what it says. you See, that's the second part of Ezra's commitment. He's going to obey God's word. And there's a huge difference between just knowing something and obeying something. I can tell you right now that if I'm driving on 70, Highway 70 right here, the speed limit is either 55 or 50, depending on if I cross that imaginary city limit line or not. Okay? That's the speed limit. There are white signs all along the way that tell me anywhere I'm at, this is the speed limit. But can I tell you something? just because I know that doesn't necessarily follow that I have to obey that. You see that little white sign that tells me this is the speed limit, it really honestly in no ways hinders me from going 80 or 90. If I get in my truck and I start running 90 down the highway, that sign's not going to jump in my way and be like, whoa, you need to stop. You can only go 50 or 55 here. The fact that I know that in my head doesn't stop. It doesn't hinder the fact that if I want to get in my truck and go down the road at 90 miles an hour, I can do that until the man with the blue lights catches up with me. Now, he might have something to say about it. He might hinder me, okay? But that sign is just information. And if I don't choose to obey that information, then I'm going to pay for it some other way. Because when that officer with the blue lights walks up to me and he gives me that ticket, you know what's going to be written on it? Two things. This is what you were doing, and this is what you were allowed to do. This is the speed you were going, and this is what you should have been doing. And you know what that ticket's going to say? You knew exactly what was expected of you. You knew exactly what the rules said, but you chose to disobey it anyway. And by the way, it's also going to say at the very bottom, here's your fine, and by the way, show up at court on this date. Okay? You see, there's a difference between knowing up here, and obeying what we know. You see, for some of us, we know God's Word because we know these stories. For some of us, we've been taught these stories. We grew up in Sunday school. We grew up in our church the whole life. And so for some of us, we've got this level of commitment. We know a lot of God's Word. But see, it's the, the commitment is not just to know it. It's to obey God's Word. And to obey God's Word means that His Word has authority in the way that we live our life. His word influences the choices and decisions that I make. My day-to-day life is impacted not just by knowing what it says, but by what it says. See, some of us can't obey God's word because we don't know God's word, but some of us know God's word yet we choose not to obey it. We know it up here, but we don't live it out here. We know it in our minds, but we don't live it out in our hearts, and we don't live it out in our lives, and we can memorize every word uh, that Jesus says. We can memorize all those red letters in this book, but i got to be honest with you. If you just memorize every word in this book, and it doesn't make a difference in how you live, then you've only fooled yourself. According to the book of James, if we are only hearers of the word and not doers of the word, we have deceived ourselves. What you've really done is you've deceived yourself into thinking you're a follower of Christ when really you're just a guy sitting in a bookshelf or in a library or somebody who knows a lot about him. You see, can I be honest with you? There are a lot of churches today that are filled with a lot of people who know about Jesus but don't know Jesus. There's a lot of people sitting in churches today that are having preachers stand up. They're telling them a lot about this Bible, but they're not telling them this Bible. They're not obeying it. They're not living it out in their lives. And so listen, we need to be careful that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we're following Christ when we're simply just using it to reflect our own ideas, that we're really listening to the words that Jesus says, that it makes a difference in our lives, that when we read the words on this page, we live those words out. That's the commitment Ezra says. He says, I don't just want to know this book. I want to live this book out each and every day of my life. And the call to live this word out is a call and a final commitment that he makes to teach this word to those that are around him. He ends verse 8, and he says at the end of verse 8, it is to teach its statues and ordinances in Israel. You see, as a scribe, he'd already been doing this in Persia. He'd already been teaching and leading other people. And the place he was. But now God's called him to teach God's word in a whole different set of people. And he's committed to teach this word to a new neighborhood, to a new set of people. And he's committing to teach this word to a place that God has called him to. And it's just because his location changed doesn't make that his mission has changed. His mission to spread God's word is the same in Persia as it's going to be in Israel. See, the fact is that the mission is the same for him as it is for us that are sitting in Cornerstone Baptist Church thousands of years later. It is the mission of the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples. And what does it mean to make a disciple? Simply what it says here. You teach them God's Word so that they can obey God's Word. So what? So they can teach God's Word to somebody else. You see, this is the model of missions that the Southern Baptists have been following for decades overseas. It's the model that we should be following as a church as well. We should learn, we should obey, and we should teach others. Why? So that they can learn so that they can obey, so they can teach somebody else. Our mission is not just for us. Our mission is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the street, and to anywhere God calls us to. And so the question this morning is, where are we making disciples so that they can go out and make disciples? You see, my heart and my passion and the commitment that we should all make as a church this morning is let's be a church who makes disciples, who teaches the Word of God so that people can learn the Word of God, so people can obey the God, so that they can go out and teach the Word of God. Let's make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until the whole world knows the glory of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the question for all of us is not what are we going to do as a church the question for us, simply as an individual this morning, is who are you committed to teach the Word of God to? Who's that one person or that small group that you're investing in that you're willing to teach the Word of God to so that they can learn it, so they can obey it, so they can in turn teach it to somebody else? You see, Michael can teach one person at one time, but if Michael teaches one person, to obey the word of God, and that one person then teaches one other person, and then that person teaches somebody else, you see, my impact has gone much further than I could ever imagine. If Cornerstone is a church, we committed to make disciples who made disciples who made disciples, we wouldn't just be adding numbers on Sunday morning. We'd be multiplying them by the powers of ten by the power of 15, by the power of 20, until the whole world knows. And so the question to each of us this morning is where are we making our commitment? Are we going to make this commitment to finish the journey that God's called us to? Are we going to make this commitment to give Him the glory? Are we going to make this commitment to learn, to obey, and to teach so that somebody else can learn, obey, and teach as well? Who is it that we are working so that we can send out for Christ? Who is it that we are looking to win to Christ so that we can build a believer in Christ so that we can send them out for Christ? Let's pray together this morning.